Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, April 13th, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we are going to present our eighth and final portion of our commentary on Ecclesiastes. And this is subtitled, Even Vanity is Vanity. The reason for that subtitle should become apparent in our conclusion this evening. It seems to be often overlooked that the first syllable in the word culture is cult. The first definition of culture listed in the Merriam-Webster online dictionary is the customary beliefs, social forms, and material traits of a racial, religious, or social group we would scratch out the word religious there and the word social group and put of a racial or national group. But that's okay. Our definition would be a little different, but the point should be made. It continues, also the characteristic features of everyday existence, such as diversions or a way of life, shared by people in a place or time we would layer that we would layer that on top of the traits of the racial or national group and not in addition to or perhaps in place of historically in societies which are free of tyranny the people shared a common origin myth tradition and religious practice which was actually a part of, of their early childhood education. It was a part of their daily lives from early childhood. It was part of their mythos. It was part of the things that their parents taught them. How to act, how to behave, what to think, what to think about God what to think about existence, what to think about their wider nation, their country, the people around them. But tyrannies are generally compelled to codify and enforce their own religious beliefs and practices by either force or law when they have objectives which conflict with the values of the organic nation over which they rule. For this reason, in chapter 16 of the book of Acts, we see where certain Roman citizens were confronted with the Christian gospel, and they complained to the magistrates and said, These men agitate our city, being Judeans, and they declare customs, and this is the important part, which are not lawful for us to receive nor to do, being Romans. Not lawful to receive or to do. When Rome was a republic, its people naturally agreed to cooperate because they had a common origin and a shared culture and values. When Rome became an empire, its citizens were required to pledge allegiance to the emperor, even making sacrifices in temples dedicated to the emperor, and their daily 
practices and customs were restricted by law. The eventual acceptance of Christianity is often blamed for fracturing the Roman people and precipitating the downfall of the empire. However, it is clear that the empire and its people had already slid into a state of decadence and it had already begun to crumble long before Christianity was accepted. The Roman Empire reached its greatest extent in 117 AD under the Emperor Trajan and ceased to expand territorially at that time. The Goths began invading Roman territory and sacking Roman cities from 238 AD, 73 years before the Edict of Toleration decriminalized the practice of Christianity. The wars with the Goths continued throughout the 3rd and 4th centuries. Even before the Gothic invasions, the Emperor Caracalla extended citizenship by decree to all the freedmen of the empire, whereby inhabitants of any race became equal citizens of Rome. That was around 210-213 AD in there. This same emperor also began the practice of buying peace from Rome's enemies as he bribed the Alamanni after fighting an indecisive battle with them in 213 AD. During this time the currency was significantly debased in spite of the great increases in tax revenue through the expansion of citizenship. All of these events are signs of a decaying empire. The Alamanni began taking Roman territory again by 260 as the empire was also continually resisting the Goths. During this century there were many other crises and revolts of provinces throughout the empire and restoration was only temporary. Christianity did not make Rome fall as it was already well on its way by the time Christianity was accepted in the middle of the fourth century. Rather, decadence precipitated Rome's fall and it is a major element in the eventual destruction of every empire. Likewise with Egypt. Originally only native and true-born Egyptians were even considered to be people. But later in the Middle Kingdom, as Egypt transitioned itself to become a, a great empire, things began to change. This is evident in Egyptian writings such as the admonitions of Ipuwer, a text which is believed to date to, a, to the period between the Old and Middle Kingdoms, or perhaps from 2300 to 2050 BC. This text is esteemed, and I believe accurately so, to date to within that 250 year period, from 2300 to 2050 BC. This is perhaps a hundred years before the call of Abraham recorded in Genesis chapter 12, and perhaps longer. The translation of the text found in ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament 
edited by James Pritchard and published in its third edition at Princeton in 1969, is prefaced with a statement. The admonitions of Ipuwer, I-P-U-W-E-R, Ipuwer, is prefaced with a statement which says in part, The following text is prophetic in a biblical sense. The prophet is not foretelling the future, but is standing before a pharaoh and condemning the past and present administration of Egypt, meaning the administration of Egypt sometime around 2200 BC. Let's round it down to that period. Jeremiah did the same thing in Jerusalem nearly 1800 years later. I'm sorry, nearly 1600 years later. Bad math. So we read from the admonitions of Ipuwer from page 441 of ancient Near Eastern texts in part, and this is the very beginning of the admonitions, a man regards his son as his enemy. A man of character goes in mourning because of what has happened in the land. Foreigners have become people everywhere. And we're just going to end there. Or stop there. The translator, John Wilson, made a footnote at the word for people here which says, the term men or humans or people was used by the Egyptians to designate themselves in contrast to their foreign neighbors who were not conceded to be real people. So we see that the acceptance of the concept that racial aliens can be people is protested by the writer, an Egyptian prophet, and he described this event as having driven wedges between fathers and sons, a situation upon which he expects men of character to mourn. Our own empire, which we generally call America, entered into this same stage of its own history with the passage of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which by decree had turned Negroes and other savages into people. These changing attitudes towards race in Egypt had eventually changed even the religious beliefs of the people. This is evident in a hymn to Amun-Re, which ostensibly dates to as early as the 13th dynasty, or the beginning of the 18th century. So it was written only a couple of hundred years after the admonitions of Ipuwer. In the preface to this hymn, the editors write, in part, Egypt's world position under her empire produced strong tendencies toward centralization and unification of Egyptian religion with universalism and with syncretism of the gods. This is the same thing which happened under the later Roman Empire, and it is also just what we can see happening in America today. Today, the policy that is repeated to the public by our own governments and institutions, religious and otherwise, is that Christians, Jews, and Muslims all worship the same God. 
And that is certainly not true. In fact, it is straight bullshit. So we read in this hymn, made to the creator god of the Egyptian religion, in part from ancient Near Eastern text, page 366, Hail to thee, O Ray, Lord of of truth, whose shrine is hidden, the Lord of the gods, Kepri, just another name for Ray, in the midst of his bark, the bark of the sun god, which he rode across the daytime sky, who gave commands, and the gods came into being. Atom, another title for the same god, Atom, who made the people, distinguished their nature made their life, and separated the colors one from another. Red, yellow, black, and brown. At first, foreigners were not even people. And that's the end of my citation where it says, and separated colors one from another in relation to those people that God made. At first, in the admonitions of Ipuwer 400 years before this, Foreigners were not even people, but now, after Egypt transitions from a nation into an empire, not only are foreigners people too, but they were all created by the same God, and all colors and cultures became equally esteemed. P.C. in 1800 B.C. That's what we have there. At one time, all of Europe was Christian, and mostly all of Europe was white. Theologians like Luther considered Europe to be the whole world. That's what he said. It can be proven. It's right in the Jews and their lies. There may have been various folk beliefs found among each tribe of each particular tribe of Europeans which were peculiar to the history of a particular tribe and developed into its own unique mythos. But in general practice, all of the people were Christian and adhered to common traditions and moral values. It is necessary for the people of a nation or of a group of related nations to enjoy such circumstances if it is going to survive if its people are going to act together harmoniously in both good times and bad. But it is also necessary for people to share the same basic moral values if they are going to even function together peacefully as a community. The United States was founded as a union of Christian nations, which were called states. While the founders insisted upon a separation of church and state, that did not mean that they demanded a separation of religion and state, as there were Christian institutions throughout the organization of their governments, of the government, the federal government, and of the various state governments. Neither did they consider aliens as citizens and did not even count the Negro slaves as people when the Constitution was written. Just like Egypt started out, America started out. Negroes weren't people, generally speaking. The Constitution was expressly intended for the founders and their posterity. 
and that excluded the Negroes as well as anyone else of any other race. Somewhere along the line, right around the war between the states, the Federation of Nations became an empire under a veiled form of tyranny. So today the tyranny enforces the notion that aliens can be people and equal citizens. That is exactly what happened when Egypt became an empire, and when the Roman Emperor Caracalla extended citizenship to all of the freedmen, the former slaves, in Rome. While the tyranny in Egypt managed to hold on for nearly a thousand years, Roman decadence lasted only a couple of hundred only a couple of centuries before it collapsed. How long should America last? As I la- as I wrote this, as I wrote this yesterday, a question came up in social media, which has also arisen often in the past. Some of our friends protested the usual call to support our troops, even in the event of an unjust war. Their protest was met with the usual replies that the unjust war was not the fault of the soldiers, who were only obeying orders. The hypocrisy is glaring, as the same people typically look on with apathy when a 90-something former German soldier is tried and imprisoned for supposed war crimes from 75 years ago. They may only have a valid argument. If the service in fighting such a war were compulsory, but in an all-volunteer army, those who enlist to perpetuate imperialism do so for their own reward, whether it be civic, social, or financial, and not out of any true sense of duty or service to their people. So I asked in reply, how can men sign up to support a wicked and imperialist government, wittingly or unwittingly, and think that they will escape punishment for it? The United States government forcing us to countenance fornication, abortion, and sodomy is an evil institution. Anyone who, think, who, anyone who signs up to defend it deserves to end up maimed and killed, whatever the instrument of God's vengeance shall be. Now, so far as I write this, I have received no response from the hypocrites. Today's religious institutions all operate at the convenience of the government, as they are indebted to the government for their tax exemptions. So there are no denominational churches with a following of any great significance which would stand up to correct the government. But if we perceive what was transpiring in ancient Jerusalem, we see the same corruption as we do today. And Yahweh, the God of Israel, quite often chose his prophets from outside of the inner circle of Levites at the temple to stand and admonish the government. Jeremiah was one of the most significant of the prophets 
who directly admonished the government, and the people wanted to kill him as he stood outside before the gates of the city and pronounced curses and damnation upon the kingdom and its inhabitants for their sin. We have also seen this here in the ancient Egyptian admonitions of Ipuwer, where the title character had uttered his own pronunciations against the government of his own time. And we are fortunate to have had them recorded for our benefit and our instruction. We have elucidated all of this because it is clear to us that in a properly functioning nation or kingdom there should be absolutely no difference between the political and the religious assembly. If a healthy nation is to survive and maintain its cultural and racial integrity then separation of religion and state is impossible because it must maintain its core values its mythos and its culture unadulterated. The most successful ancient tyrannies understood the connection and therefore they forced the people to share a common religion which deviated from tradition and which was amenable to their own objectives. This is why empires control religions today. The so-called political correctness enforced by the government has also been accepted and promoted in all of the religious denominations as well as the educational institutions. If a nation or kingdom is to survive and perpetuate itself, its traditional religious beliefs and its civic objectives must be totally harmonious with one another. But if an empire is going to survive, it must force the same values on all of its different peoples. And those values are artificially formulated to consist of whatever is convenient to maintaining the tyranny. In our own history, we didn't understand the first part of the equation. And that's why we now suffer with the second. Now one may ask, what does all this have to do with Ecclesiastes? It is said in the 110th Psalm that David's Lord is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. David himself was a type for the Messiah and in different ways Solomon was also as his successor. While David and Solomon themselves were not properly Melchizedek priests, for reasons far too numerous to explain here, and they did not lay claim to an official priestly title, they nevertheless fulfilled that role in their own rule over the kingdom of Yahweh. They served as both kings and priests. Once we understand that a priest is a spiritual counselor, a guide, and not merely an officiator of rituals. In that sense, Peter explained to the dispersed children of Israel, who had turned to Christ in chapter 2 of his first epistle, among other things, 
that Christians are instructed to act as a royal priesthood. We must use our politics to safeguard the values of our religion. Otherwise, there's no survival without that. If your politics do not safeguard the values of your people and the mythos, that the myths, the religious beliefs of your people, your nation cannot survive. So as Yahshua Christ, so Yahshua Christ as Melchizedek priest ultimately is and will be the supreme civic ruler as well as the supreme spiritual authority of the nation, the king of kings as well as the highest priest. This was the model which David and then Solomon strove to emulate. And as a digression, if we examine the Aheneid of Virgil and the history of Rome, we will find that Julius Caesar also asserted himself as both king or emperor and high priest or Pontifex Maximus over his own people, a practice which later emperors retained. The Romans understood the connection. So in this role as priest, the Romans understood the necessity of the connection. So, in this role as king and priest, Solomon, the king of Israel, and the preacher of Ecclesiastes, herein gives both religious and moral instruction, as well as civic instruction, instruction on the qualities which princes and kings should have. Furthermore, he has exhorted his readers, as well as future rulers, to obedience to God. If they had maintained obedience to God, the nation and kingdom would indeed have been perpetuated forever, as it is stated in the Law of Moses. Earlier in his life, Solomon had written Psalms, Proverbs, and a Book of Wisdom. He didn't write all the Psalms. David wrote most of them. Solomon wrote some of the surviving psalms and a lot which did not survive. Then, after he had become king, and when he was advanced in years, as we have already explained, and as he admits here in this work, he wandered off into licentiousness and sin. We have shown that Ecclesiastes is an apology for his sin, even if he justified himself in it. And here Solomon, as the preacher, has reclaimed his role as spiritual leader of the kingdom. Here he also condemns sin as a man who beyond all others had been able to experience it and to determine its value. So the advice he gives for reason of his actual experience is all the more valuable. If so great a sinner had realized the vanity of sin, and for that reason encouraged obedience to God, explaining the reasons why obedience is advantageous, that is all the more reason that someone who has not sinned in such a manner should not follow down the path to sin.
Solomon's advice is of all the more value because it was from experience. In that manner, Solomon, as king over Israel, was also an antitype for Christ, the true Melchizedek priest, who alone had overcome sin by living life in the flesh and remaining free of sin. Paul explained this in Hebrews chapter 4, where he wrote, For we do not have a high priest having no ability to sympathize with our weakness, but who, being tested by all things in like manner, is without sin. So, in our most recent presentation of this work, in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, we saw that the preacher had not only encouraged future rulers to obedience, he also warned against many of the injustices that wicked rulers may commit against the people. So, he warned in verse 4 of that chapter that if the spirit of the ruler rise up against thee, leave not thy place, for soundness will restrain many transgressions. There the preacher was exhorting wise men to resist, to stand up to such rulers, to leave not thy place, or do not yield, and proceeded to admonish them according to that wisdom which is from God. Then he went on to warn of such wicked rulers who would elevate fools to their courts, fools to occupy the high offices of the kingdom, while men who are truly rich in wisdom are abandoned to inhabit low places in society. We can also witness that very phenomenon in every decadent empire, and of course in our own government today. Finally, in the closing passages of Ecclesiastes chapter 10, we see an admonition against slothful rulers, where the preacher exclaimed, Woe to thee, O land, when thy king is a child, and thy princes eat in the morning. Blessed art thou, O land, when thy king is the son of nobles, and thy princes eat in due season for strength and not for drunkenness. By much slothfulness the building decays, speaking of the nation, and through idleness of the hands the house drops through. This warning is against unlearned and immature rulers, under which a kingdom would suffer, and princes or administrators who live licentiously, when we choose rulers who are too young and inexperienced and who have not proven themselves in a long commitment to a just cause, we are much more likely to suffer when those whom we thought were leaders or when those who thought that they themselves were leaders turn out to be corrupt and immoral. As another digression, Matthew Heimbach and many other supposed leaders in this alt-right movement, that this so-called alt-right movement, are significant contemporary examples of this phenomenon. When our people do not properly understand history, 
they are doomed to repeat these same mistakes continually. We have a whole generation of disaffected youth and young people. When I say young people, I mean typically under 40, who are clinging to these immoral alt-right leaders who are really just a bunch of talking heads that are absolutely lacking in any of the important substance that a real leader should have. Then in that same chapter, chapter 10 of Ecclesiastes, the preacher warned in relation to those same things, that a feast is made for laughter and wine makes merry, but money answers all things. In response to this, we said that so, rather than working diligently to preserve the house, which is the kingdom, the foolish king and the princes who enjoy luxuries would spend money and more money, often money which is raised from the poor their kingdom, in order to maintain themselves in mirth and drunkenness. This is the exact pattern which the governments of the West follow today. And if it does not describe the American government, I cannot imagine anything that does. Finally, the preacher turned to warn his readers, Curse not the king, no, not in thy thought, and curse not the rich in thy bedchamber. For a bird of the air shall carry the voice, and that which hath wings shall tell the matter. And it is not always, but often evident in history that tyrannies rely on a system of snitches in order to survive. Look at the Cheka in the Soviet Union and look at the way our own society is being conducted today where citizens are being rewarded to snitch on each other, where children are being rewarded to snitch on their parents while people are being arrested with trumped-up charges so that the cops hope they will snitch on a bunch of others. And perhaps something of substance will arise. Every tyranny, practically every tyranny, is a snitch society. In Rome, when they were persecuting Christians, they basically tortured Christians hoping that they would snitch out other Christians to maintain their tyranny. So Ecclesiastes chapter 10 is not only <laughs> an, a moral admonishment concerning the qualities of leaders, but it's an excellent depiction of the qualities of tyrannies. Recently, a few of our friends in Britain had suddenly disappeared this happened back in January. We could only wonder what may, what may have happened to them. Now we have been sent an article titled Six to Face Trial Accused of National Action Membership. National Action was a white nationalist political group which had been banned in Britain, I believe in 2016. Not only is Britain a tyranny, this circumstance also shows the degree of control, even over one's thoughts, which the government seeks to exert over its citizens. 
You cannot get more religious than demanding the authority to control the thoughts of your subjects. That is a religion imposed by a tyranny. How can someone be a member of a banned group if the group is also disbanded? But if former members of this group chose to remain friends and remain in contact with one another, they are harassed, they are arrested, they are brought to trial for some perceived crime, although no member of the group has actually committed a crime. And worst of all, one member of the group is, according to the reports on these arrests, also accused of possessing information of a kind likely to be useful to a person committing or preparing an act of terrorism. This does indeed reflect an attempt to justify thought control. So now it is a crime merely to possess certain categories of information. If this is a crime then simply knowing where there is a store which sells box cutters may cause one to be imprisoned. Yet nobody of political or religious significance in Britain or in America will leave not thy place, taking a stand against this bullshit so that soundness will restrain many transgressions. Instead, they will all continue to retreat further and for further for the sake of their own security, while the real terrorists, the hordes of invading aliens, rape tens of thousands of British girls, and there is no penalty or punishment, and nobody will speak in defense of the victims for fear of being labeled a racist and a terrorist. It's time, white man. Here we have endeavored to demonstrate how timeless are the words of the preacher that they still admonish us to this very day. And that even after 3,000 years, we have failed to heed their advice. Now we shall proceed with part with, with our presentation of Ecclesiastes from the beginning of chapter 11, where we last left off in part 7 of our series, in a presentation which was given here on March 2nd, six weeks ago. Our recent travels have precluded us from finishing this presentation until now, so we apologize for the delay. Here the preacher turns from admonishments concerning national leadership towards more general advice concerning the conduct of one's life. As he proceeds, once again he depicts for us the inevitable cycles of life and death in the trials of vanity which all men must face, but concludes by warning of judgment in death and the consequences of one's actions in life. So we then begin with Ecclesiastes chapter 11 Cast thy bread upon the waters for thou shalt find it after many days Now of course that must be an allegory because they didn't have 
plastic bags in those days, and the bread would get soggy pretty quick. Give a portion to seven, and also to eight, for thou knowest not what evil shall be upon the earth. The preacher is encouraging men to act charitably, cast thy bread upon the waters, even to feed seven or eight others, if one is able to do so. So the admonishment to cast thy bread upon the waters is a call to share one's wealth with the needy. And then where he says, Thou shalt find it after many days, he is expressing an assurance that a charitable man may receive charity in return in the event that he himself also becomes needy. Giving a portion to seven or eight, because thou knowest not what evil shall be. If one is merciful and feeds his needy brethren, one will receive mercy from God in the day of evil, when he himself is in need of mercy. The same writer said in Proverbs chapter 14 that he that despises his neighbor sinneth, but he that has mercy on the poor, happy is he. Do they not err that devise evil? But mercy and truth shall be to them that devise good. The Apostle James related mercy to charity in chapter 2 of his epistle, where he said, For judgment is without mercy, for him not effecting mercy. Same thing that was said in Proverbs. Mercy exalts over judgment. What is the benefit, my brethren, if one should claim to have faith but does not have works? Is faith able to save him? If a brother or sister becomes naked and lacking daily food, and one from among you should say to them, Go in peace, be warm and fed, but you would not give to them the provisions for the body, what is the benefit? Thusly also faith, if it should not have works, is by itself dead. As Paul of Tarsus wrote in chapter 9 of his second epistle to the Corinthians, in an exhortation concerning giving to the needy of the oppressed apostles in Jerusalem, But this I say, he which sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he which sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Then in Galatians chapter 6, speaking in reference to teachers of the scriptures, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Speaking to a young man who professed to keep the entire law, Christ had said, as it is recorded in John chapter 18, Yet lackest thou one thing, sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Of course, he did not require that of every man, that extreme measure. But he made an example of this particular man, which all of us should emulate in some degree. The preacher continues, If the clouds be full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if a tree falls toward the south, or towards the north, In the place where the tree falleth, there it shall be. Here the preacher seems to make an observation regarding the inevitable vanity of those caught up in the natural cycles of life and death, 
but both statements also relate to what was previously illustrated concerning charity and mercy. Clouds, when they are full, are rich with moisture, yet they are destined to shed that moisture upon the earth so that others can benefit. Likewise, trees, full and beautiful and seemingly very strong, are also destined to fall and die just like the clouds are destined to become empty and they will be seen without fruit in that same place where they fell by all who pass by you either share your fruit or it rots continuing the preacher makes another warning against sloth so if you're not working you should go find a job before you go begging for charity. He that observes the wind shall not sow, and he that regards the clouds shall not reap. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, we saw a similar warning to the slothful, where the preacher had said that the fool folds his hands together and eats his own flesh. We interpreted this as a reference to the lazy or slothful man who destroys himself by his own inactivity. A man who is afraid to sow because the wind might carry some of the seed away may end up not sowing at all. A man who neglects to reap because he fears that it may rain will never accomplish the harvest. So we must sow and reap at the appointed times regardless of the possibility of what might happen. Of course, this is applicable to all of the activities of life, and not only to the sowing and reaping of fields, which are used here as an allegory. Now the preacher explains why we must conduct the business of our lives, regardless of our own fear that something detrimental to our cause may occur. And he says in verse 5, Ecclesiastes chapter 11. As thou knowest not what is the way of the Spirit, nor how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child, even so thou knowest not the works of God who maketh all, who makes all things. Thou knowest not the way of the Spirit, as Christ had also said in John chapter 3, that the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know from where it comes and where it goes. Thusly are all who are born from of the Spirit. Paul spoke on the same subject as the preacher does here, from a different perspective in Romans chapter 8, where he said, And in like manner the Spirit assists us with our weakness. For that which we should pray for, regarding what there is need of, we do not know. But the Spirit itself intercedes with inexpressible utterances. Because man does not understand exactly how everything operates, not even now, and man does not know everything that is going to happen, he should go about his business in due season, which means at the appropriate time, and being faithful, the Spirit of God will guide his way and determine his prosperity for him. Christ himself had also told his apostles in the parable of the ten servants found in Luke chapter 19, Engage yourself in business while I go, or until I come.
So the preacher continues with an encouragement, saying, In the morning sow thy seed. Don't worry about the wind. And in the evening withhold not thine hand. Work without regarding whether or not it's going to rain. For thou knowest not whether thou shalt prosper, either this or that, or whether they both shall be alike good, your morning and your evening being equally fruitful. This is the answer to the warning against sloth, which we just saw in verse 4, where the King James Version has here, withhold not thine hand. The Hebrew verb means to give rest. So the New American Standard Bible appropriately translates the phrase to read, let not thine hand be idle. And Brenton Septuagint similarly has, let not thine hand be slack. Man should always be diligent to labor, regardless of the prospects of success in his labors. That is why Paul said regarding the Christian assemblies, I have planted and Apollos has watered, but Yahweh makes to grow. Now the preacher seems to change the subject once again. Truly, the light is sweet, and a pleasant thing it is for the eyes to behold the sun. But if a man lives many years and rejoices in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they shall be many. All that cometh is vanity. Where he says the light is sweet, he speaks of the light of day, as he himself informs us where he speaks of beholding the sun. Living is better than death, as the preacher had said in chapter 9 of Ecclesiastes. A living dog is better than a dead lion. So the reference to the days of darkness is a reference to death, and he estimates that the days of death are numerous. Then where the preacher exclaims that all that cometh is vanity, he returns to the central theme of Ecclesiastes. However, as he continues, we must come to realize that once again the preacher is employing practical skepticism in a rhetorical prevarication. Now, in response to the idea that once a man dies, he is dead for a long time, he continues with what, on the surface, seems to be an encouragement to licentiousness. And it's actually just the opposite. Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, and walk in the ways of thine heart, and in the sight of thine eyes. But know thou that for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. Paul had used, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, this is not in my notes, it's sort of off the cuff. The preacher had used this analogy of following things after the sight of your eyes earlier in Ecclesiastes where he spoke of people who kept men who kept the sight of their eyes meaning that they did not go off into sin they did not chase after their lusts this is irony first the preacher says sure go ahead and party 
That's what he's saying here in verse 9, in the beginning. But then he warns that for all these things, for whatever fleshly desires of the heart that a young man may pursue, Yahweh will bring thee into judgment. So it actually stands as a warning against sin. And now as he continues, he warns that such sin will lead to sorrow. Therefore remove sorrow from thy heart. The sin is going to cause sorrow. You may not know it when you're young and dumb and want to party and chase after all your lusts. You may not know it, but that sin will cause sorrow. So here the preacher equates it with sorrow. Therefore remove sorrow from thy heart and put away evil from thy flesh for childhood and youth are vanity. Childhood and youth pass relatively quickly and the old man faces the prospect of death. For that reason the preacher admonishes against sin because while all appears to be vanity all is really not vanity as he is about to announce in chapter 12 of this work. And now with Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1. Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. In a wise man's later years, he realizes that there is no true reward in a youth spent in licentiousness and the pursuit of pleasure. So the preacher admonishes men to consider their creator while they are still young, before the evil days come, before you're an old man and face sickness and disease and war and judgment and whatever else you must face, whatever other trials you may have. To consider their creator while they are still young and have an opportunity to do better things than to pursue their own lusts. So from the vanity of his own experience, he urges men to repent while they have an opportunity. While the sun or the light or the moon or the stars be not darkened, nor the clouds return after the rain. And now, from the authority of his role as prophet as well as king and priests, king and priest, he further urges his readers to repentance before the wrath of God comes upon them in a time of national judgment, where he continues and says, In the day when the keepers of the house shall tremble, and the strong men shall bow themselves, and the grinders cease because they are few, the grinders are those who grind grain, and those that look out of the windows be darkened, and the doors shall be shut in the streets when the sound of the grinding is low and he shall rise up at the voice of a bird and all the daughters of music shall be brought low also when they shall be afraid of that which is high and fear shall be in the way and the almond tree shall flourish and we'll explain that at length and the grasshopper shall be a burden and desire shall fail because man goeth to his long home, and the mourners go about the streets. 
where we see the phrase, when the almond tree flourishes. The word for almond seems to also have been used to mean, I'm sorry, the word for almond was also used to mean watchfulness or as a verb, to watch, or to wake, or to be alert. Strong's gives the original meaning of the verb as to be almond-shaped, and evidently it came to refer to the state of open eyes. Open eyes are almond-shaped. As a verb, it appears as an exhortation to watch in Ezra chapter 8, verse 29, in Job chapter 21 where the King James Version mistranslated the word as remain in Job 21.32, and it should instead be watch. In Psalm 102, Psalm 127, Isaiah chapter 29, in Jeremiah several times in chapters 1, 5, 31, and 47, and in Daniel 9.14, the verb form, the word almond used as a verb, should be watch. The word does, however, refer to almonds or to the almond tree in Genesis 43.11, in Numbers chapter 17, and in Jeremiah chapter 1 in verse 11. Now, while there are two separate Strong's entries and a slightly different spelling in Strong's English transliteration for the verb shakad at 82.45 and for the noun shaked at 82.47, the vowels really don't exist. The words have the exact same spelling and are the same word in ancient Hebrew. So the differences in Strong's only distinguish the parts of speech. In Numbers chapter 17, we learn that the staff of Aaron was from an almond tree. Perhaps its placement in the Ark of the Covenant, along with the tablets of the law, indicates a need to be vigilant or watchful concerning the law. But the connection of the almond tree to a need for watchfulness is most readily apparent in Jeremiah chapter 1, in verses 11 and 12, where we see the same word used twice, and where the King James Version has, Moreover, the word of Yahweh, the word of the Lord, came unto me, saying, Jeremiah, what seest thou? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. Then said Yahweh unto me, Thou hast well seen, for I will hasten my word to perform it. In that passage where it says, What seest thou, and thou hast well seen, the word for see is re'ah, strong 7200. But the word for almond tree in verse 11 is our word here, shaked. And the word for hasten is also shakad, the verb form. So in Jeremiah, there is a play on words that the, translation, the translations miss by necessity. And the same word for almond tree is used as a verb, meaning hasten or watch. Signifying the diligence required to keep a promise if the word if the verb was translated consistently as it is in all the other passages it means to watch or to be alert or to be awake 
then this passage in Jeremiah would have ended with the statement, For I will watch my word to perform it, meaning that I will keep my promises. I will carefully observe what I've said and keep those promises. So Jeremiah chapter 1 is a warning of national judgment. And here in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 5, we see a similar use of the symbol of the almond tree. The flourishing of the almond tree signifies that there has come a time to watch for judgment. And the burden of the grasshopper signifies a time when parasites will feed themselves on the kingdom, devouring the food in the fields. Because there is little grain, the sound of grinding is low, and because men are living in fear, the doors are shut in the streets. So the preacher is certainly describing a period of national judgment on account of sin, a time when death is knocking at the door. So he is continuing an analogy, warning that repentance is necessary before death, where he said that desire shall fail, referring to a man's personal desires. Because a man goeth to his long home, meaning the state of death, I'm sorry, I'm still typing. And so he continues, Or ever the silver cord be loosed, or the golden bowl be broken, or the pitcher be broken at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. Many commentators see at least most of these four metaphors as describing parts of the body, the spine, the brain, the stomach, the heart, Certain others interpret them metaphysically as the connection between the body and the spirit. We would advise against New Age claims that the silver cord here describes a certain metaphysical phenomenon which is at the center of some satanic philosophies. However, we would rather interpret these metaphors spiritually. This is the only place that the phrase silver cord appears in scripture. But we can imagine it represents a connection between body and spirit that endures for as long as a man lives. Therefore, death causes the cord to be loosed. When the tabernacle in the wilderness was built, fillets or fillets, F-I-L-L-E-T-S, Fillets, which are cords or ribbons made of silver, were used to bind the curtains of the tabernacle to the pillars. So we may interpret the silver cord here to be an allegory representing the binding of the skin of the temple, which contains the spirit. And when it is broken, the spirit departs from the temple. The golden bowl is a part of the candlestick, as we see in Zechariah chapter 4. And the bowl held the oil which enabled the candlestick to produce light. So it seems that the golden bowl is the head of a man where the mind resides. Likewise, the pitcher and the wheel can be reckoned as metaphors for the belly and the heart. We must not lose sight of the fact that these descriptions of the possible means of death which man may suffer remain connected to the admonition at the beginning of the chapter, to remember now thy creator, 
that men are better off to remember their Creator before they die. For this Paul of Tarsus says in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. We interpret both of these statements as a sign of repentance, that a man is better off repenting of his sins before he dies, rather than remaining stubborn until he dies. In any event, when the when the events which the, these things represent finally do befall a man in death, the preacher informs us, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. The physical body is only dust. As Abraham proclaimed in an expression of humility before Yahweh, Behold now, I have taken upon me to speak unto Yahweh, which am but dust and ashes. However, here the preacher admits that the spirit of man returns to God, something which he expressed skepticism of earlier in his work. We shall discuss that phenomenon shortly, and we shall discuss it at length. But for now, the preacher proclaims once more, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, all is vanity. The preacher opened this book with the same proclamation, chapter 1, verse 2. And here his teaching is ended, short of one more explanation of his final conclusion. When we arrive at the conclusion of Ecclesiastes, we must ultimately recognize the fact that even vanity is vanity, that even the transientness or vanity of man is only temporary. As Paul had said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. So vanity must indeed be vanity. The preacher continues and speaks of himself, as he also professed to possess wisdom earlier in his book, and especially in chapter 2 where he said, I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom, and to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. So even now he proclaims, and moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yea, he gave good heed, and sought out, and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find out acceptable words, and that which was written was upright, even words of truth. It seems as if the original work may have ended with verse 8. And what we read in these final verses is an appendix by the preacher wherein he refers to himself. But as we have already elucidated from scripture, Solomon had written thousands of proverbs and songs before he turned to sin in his later years. And Ecclesiastes, written from the perspective of his looking back upon those years of sin, must have been written late in his life. However, the Proverbs, 
which we have preserved in our Bibles. And the other writings which can be attributed to him are difficult to date. Perhaps one day we may be able to determine a better chronology of all of his writings, if indeed he continued to write Proverbs at this late period of his life. The words of the wise, he says here in verse 11, the words of the wise are as goads, as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. Where the preacher mentions wisdom or the wise, he refers to the wisdom of God and those who seek it, as we have established in a language which he employed earlier in this work and in the book of Proverbs. The one shepherd must be Yahweh God, and therefore the preacher refers to those with the wisdom of God who merely share what God has given them. And further, he says in verse 12, and further, by these, my son, be admonished. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Here the reader is considered his son as a wise old king may address a young subject. The reader is affectionately called his son. Much study is a weariness of the flesh, just as it says in chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes in verse 18, for in much wisdom is grief, and he that increases knowledge increases sorrow. Of the making of many books there is no end. Writing this it is easy for me to look out into the hallway and see the hundreds of Bible commentaries and Bible dictionaries which had been collected by Clifton Emmeheiser and which now sit here on my bookshelves. Of the making of many books, there certainly is no end, even as Clifton's large collection represents a very small part of all of the interpretations of Scripture which have been written. Now the preacher offers his final conclusion. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. If there were no God, if there were no judgment, if there were no life after death, if everything was vanity. What would be the point of keeping the commandments? And if man did not remember what he did in this life after he died, what would be the point of living? What would be the point of man's having been subjected to vanity? And what would be the point of judgment? From part 9 of our Romans commentary, subtitled The Two Natures of Adamic Man, we said the following, and we will repeat our commentary in part from verses 9 through 13 of Romans chapter 7. Paul of Tarsus speaking of his own experiences. Now I was alive apart from the law once, but the commandment having come, the guilt was revived and I died. 
And it was found to me that the commandment, which is for life, it is for death. For sin, having taken a starting point by the commandment, had seduced and killed me through it. And our comment was that we do not realize the gravity of our sin until we read law and find that the punishment for our sin is death. Once we realize that obedience to the commandment keeps us on the path to life and see the consequences of our sin, we should understand that our sin leads us to death. And Paul says in verse 12, Romans chapter 7, So indeed, the law is sacred, and the commandment sacred, and just, and good. Then, that which is good, to me, has it become death? Certainly not. But sin, that it may bring sin to light, through the good in me, accomplishes death, so that the sin becomes excessively wicked by the commandment. Now, that may not make any sense at all. The good in Paul can read the law and recognize that his behavior which was contrary to the law was sinful and also acknowledge the punishment which he merited for that behavior. The good in Paul can recognize that sinful behavior merited death and therefore Paul is describing a learning process. The result is that the Adamic man understands how important it is to keep the law of Yahweh in his heart and to do his best to abide by it. It is important that the sin becomes evident by the commandment so that the Adamic man can experience sin and by that experience he can learn not to do evil. The preacher, Solomon, confessed several times in Ecclesiastes. I'm sorry, I need a drink. He confessed several times in Ecclesiastes that he gave himself over to sin. and admitted that he found no value in it. So his conclusion was that man must keep the commandments of God. But writing from an entirely different perspective, Paul of Tarsus admitted how difficult it was for a fleshly man to keep the law, where he said in that same chapter of Romans, using himself as an example, that for that which I perpetrate I do not recognize. I do not practice that which I wish, rather I do that which I hate. But if I do that which I do not wish, I concede to the law that it is virtuous. So in the end, Paul's conclusion was also that a man must keep the commandments of God. Paul taught that man would inevitably sin and still learn not to do evil. And Solomon gave himself over to sin, and by it he ultimately came to the conclusion that man must not do evil. Here Solomon challenged young men to follow after their own hearts, and then he warned them that they would be judged by God for their actions. So both men concluded in different ways that it is necessary for man to keep the laws of Yahweh even though the intentions of the flesh are contrary to that law. Skepticism, irony, rhetorical prevarications, these are the tools which the preacher chose by which to illustrate his final conclusion, which is the need to keep the commandments of Yahweh God. But skeptics so often turn to Ecclesiastes, 
where they find single verses to justify their skepticism. And citing them, they create doctrines of skepticism as a result. Yet they never stop to ponder the totality of what the preacher has said here. Or perhaps they would discover that the skepticism and the irony are purposeful prevarications because while from a worldly perspective all is vanity, we have a God who has a greater purpose and for that reason he has only exercised us in vanity. So even vanity is vanity. For instance, in chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes we read, who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward, and the spirit of beast that goeth downward to the earth? Skeptics have used this verse in refutation of the words of Paul of Tarsus, where he says that to be absent from the body is to be present with Yahweh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. However, here in this chapter of Ecclesiastes, in verse 7, the skeptics are indicted, since the preacher clearly states that after death, then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return to God who gave it. So the skepticism expressed in the earlier passage must be understood as a rhetorical device, as the preacher is certainly not in contradiction with himself. It is hypocritical to interpret any writer in a manner which makes him contradict himself. Paul of Tarsus is so often the victim of that in the Judeo-Christian commentaries, made to contradict himself all the time. And Paul of Tarsus never contradicted himself. So it is here with Solomon, the preacher of Ecclesiastes. He's interpreted as contradicting himself. It is hypocritical to in purposely interpret a writer in a manner which makes him contradict himself. It is hypocritical and it is wrong. If there is another way to interpret something where the writer does not contradict himself, that's the way he must be interpreted. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, Solomon described the vanity of man as this sore travail that God has given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. So we must recognize what the preacher certainly knew, that even vanity is vanity. This is evident because, as the preacher proclaimed, vanity is something which man is only being exercised in. And if a man is going to be judged after, after he dies, as the preacher also proclaims, then the exercise must be for a greater purpose, and the vanity must be temporary. So the same writer states in chapter 2 of the Wisdom of Solomon, a book which certainly should have been included in our scriptures, and which many early church fathers accepted as canonical. For God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. The image of God is the eternity of God.
If that is insufficient proof of Solomon's real attitude towards death, then the Christian profession found only two verses later. In chapter 3 of that same book, should also explain his intentions further, where he wrote, But the souls of the righteous are in the hand of God, and there shall no torment touch them. Think about John chapter 17. In the sight of the unwise they seem to die. They seemed to die in the sight of the unwise. Our enemies think they're, we're dead when they kill us, and they're deceived. In the sight of the unwise they seem to die, and their departure is taken for misery, and they're going from us to be utter destruction. But they are in peace, for though they be punished in the sight of men, yet is their hope full of immortality. But as Paul of Tarsus wrote of the faith of the Old Testament patriarchs, they had not yet seen that hope. And he says further on in Hebrews chapter 11, that these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. That does not mean that they did not have the promise, but only that they had not received it when they died, in spite of their faith. Christians have seen it, and therefore have a greater assurance of the truth of the promise. So Solomon, writing from that same perspective, which is before the coming of Christ, reckons here in this chapter that the days of darkness shall be many, that once a man dies, he will be dead for a long time. However, after the cross of Christ, man has redemption and reconciliation with God. And Paul explains that Christ gave men an entrance to God, a path by which he could reach God. Therefore, Paul wrote rather confidently in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that therefore we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor that whether we be present or absent, we may be accepted of him. So even though without God all is vanity, the preacher certainly understood that even vanity is vanity because there is a God. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul of Tarsus explained further, speaking of the Adamic creation, that therefore I consider that the, happen, the happenstances of the present time are not of value. In other words, what we suffer in this life doesn't mean much. Looking to the future honor to be revealed to us, Indeed, in earnest anticipation, the creation awaits, the creation referring to the Adamic creation, awaits the revelation of the sons of Yahweh. To vanity the creation was subjected, just as Solomon said in chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, 
not willingly, but on account of he who subjected it in expectation, that also the creation itself shall be liberated from the bondage of decay into the freedom of the honor of the children of Yahweh. That is the Christian promise. And only in that is there any need to keep the commandments of God. Otherwise, all is indeed vanity. To the enemies of our race, all is vanity, regardless of what they may do. But to us, to white Christians, who certainly are the Adamic race and the children of Israel, there is a forever, and that is the promise of Christ. If enough of our race ever understood that this is indeed the substance and promise of Scripture, we would not be divided against one another on account of the other races, as we have seen that even the ancient Egyptians were divided. And for the poisoning of Egyptian blood, noble men had mourned. The purpose of man's subjection to vanity is to learn what sin is and what are the results of sin. Man was subjected to vanity as a result of his own sin, as it is depicted in Genesis chapter 3. On a national scale, the Egyptians ultimately accepted the same sin, which was race mixing. And accordingly, even their religion was changed to a religion of universalism, as we have seen from the inscriptions. The Romans followed down that same path, and now America and the modern white world follow down that same path once again. We cannot accept such sin. And to reject it, we must be able to properly identify it. The preacher also did that, as the sin of his own life resulted from the acceptance of foreign women, foreign gods, and the fornication that accompanies that acceptance. But in the end he came to his senses, and once again sought righteousness, confessing his errors, and professing the need to keep the commandments of Yahweh his God. This concludes our presentation of Solomon's Ecclesiastes. Tomorrow night, part 35 of the Protocols of Satan. Next Friday, we will conclude our presentation of Bertrand Compare's Christianity in the Old Testament. Praise Yahweh, the God of our white race, and the eternal enemy of the infernal Jew and all the other races. Thank you for listening, and good night.